Romans chapter 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of one of the authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So as you know, we're in a series entitled, Already Not Yet. Today, the title is Justice Now and Justice Later. You can see why this particular passage was selected. I had a plan to begin the sermon not by reading the text, but by reading something else. So even though it might be a little bumpy, let me read something else. I had a dream the other night, a powerful and interesting dream. And the really frustrating thing about it is that I can't remember what it was about. Sound familiar? I had a flash of it as I woke Enough to make me think how extraordinary and meaningful it was, and then it was gone. And so, to misquote T.S. Eliot, I had the meaning, but missed the experience. This author goes on to say, our passion for justice often seems like that. We dream the dream of justice. We glimpse for a moment at a world a world at one, a world put to rights, a world where things work out, where societies function fairly and efficiently, where we not only know what we ought to do, but actually do it. And then we wake up and we come back to reality. But what are we hearing when we're dreaming that dream? It is though we can hear Not perhaps a voice itself, but the echo of a voice. A voice speaking with calm, healing authority, speaking about justice, 
about things being put to rights, about peace and hope and prosperity for all, the voice continues to echo in our imagination, our subconscious. We want to go back and listen to it again. But having woken up, we can't get back into the dream. Other people sometimes tell us it was just a fantasy. And we're half inclined to believe them. Even though such belief condemns us to cynicism. Justice now and later. Those were the words of N.T. Wright at the beginning of a book he published in 2006, a number of years ago, entitled Simply Christian. Why Christianity Makes Sense. I'm not going to preach from N.T. Wright's book. I just use it as a launching pad to say a few things at the beginning about justice now and later. The notion of justice itself is a universal longing. Everyone's looking for it. You can see it all over the world. The notion of justice is not just a universal longing, it's actually a righteous longing. It's righteous because God is the author, the source. Justice, righteousness, originate in God. So it's a universal longing and it's actually a righteous longing. But third, this is the bad news. It's a dangerous longing. It's a dangerous longing because to put it succinctly, we want mercy for us and we want justice for our enemies. And so even with our best intentions, we manipulate justice unfairly and distribute it improperly because we're self-centered beings. Therein lies the dilemma. In order to address the notion of justice, and, and let me pause to say this. This is one of those sermons that ought to be at least three, maybe four. And I still wouldn't be able to cover the material. So I welcome all your criticism, critique, and questions. Okay? Let me have them. Why did you say this? What did you mean by that? I'm happy to explain. Because this is truncated at best. But first I want to say something about the history of divine judgment in the Bible. Here's what I want to say. The history of divine judgment in the Bible sometimes is not just scary, it seems abhorrent. Why would God judge that way? But what I want to say is this. You can't avoid the accounts of God's justice in the Bible. Even if you don't like them, even if you don't think they measure up to your standard of justice or society's standard of justice, you can't avoid them. The only way you can avoid them is say something like, oh, that was for another era. Or, 
more directly, those stories are just manipulated for people who are in power. They're not really stories about God's justice. My suggestion is that is very, very dangerous. We don't take the text in our own hands and reinterpret it according to our own standards. We let the text speak for itself. Hard as it is, harsh as it is, there is divine justice implemented, particularly in the Old Testament, in ways that make us squirm. In addition to that, in the history of biblical justice, you might, for instance, look at many of the penal codes in the Old Testament and views them as maximum penalties. For instance, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, The reality is that the scripture was never suggesting that if someone punched your tooth out, you should punch theirs out. Actually, eye for eye and tooth for tooth was something to refrain from going into excessive punishment. It was, in other words, the law of God through Moses to say, there's got to be some parameters on justice. Don't go overboard. Don't be excessive in your judgments. The code, by the way, was not always implemented, even though there was a standard. You know this from modern-day descriptions of what might be the punishment for a given crime. The punishment for a given offense might be, says the sign, says the law, it might be, a fine up to X number of dollars. It might be prison time up to X number of years. It might be the death penalty. None of which means that it must be. So for instance, in the Old Testament, just to name two, if we were to take the notion of divine justice as capital punishment and apply it to every situation in the Old Testament, what we would find out very quickly is frequently the punishment was not capital punishment. For instance, when Cain killed his brother Abel, not only was he not killed as to criminal activity, punished with capital punishment. Not only that, God protected Cain from being killed after Cain killed his brother Abel. God put a mark on him so that no one would kill him. Or take, for instance, King David. When King David committed adultery and then committed murder by killing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. King David did not have capital punishment administered to him. It is interesting when you look at penal codes 
and realize that this is the standard by which you must judge no further. But you know full well that not always will that standard be applied at the highest level to the crime. I, I want to say one more thing about divine justice, particularly in the Old Testament. In a former life um, of mine, um, I did some academic legal studies. Um, got a degree in law and theology. And my thesis in that degree program analyzed the notion of what was sometimes called Chalcedon approach to law and theology, what was sometimes called theocratic notion of law and theology. The bottom line is that there were people in the Christian community who were adamant about the fact that every aspect of the Old Testament law ought to be implemented in our life if we were going to have a just society because they were God's laws. So having said that, I I would caution all of us, if you're inclined towards that, to be extremely careful about applying Old Testament theocratic codes. Why? Just two reasons. Because they lead to multiple contradictions or multiple difficult situations. Which ones are you going to choose? Some of them we don't. Others we do. The second reason I I would suggest being very cautious about implementing Old Testament theocratic codes is because we do not have the wisdom of God. In other words, a theocracy is a government ruled by God. And I will defer to God's judgment in terms of wisdom any day of the week, but I cannot defer to my own judgment because I know I'm sinful. So that makes me cautious in the application of Old Testament theocratic codes. So the first section, see I told you this was longer than one sermon. The first section is about biblical divine justice and the problems with it. The second section I want to address is the importance of justice. Why is justice even important? Well, first it's important because it's a mandate from God. Think of Micah 6.8. A song we used to sing when I was a young man. He has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Justice is a mandate by God. It reflects his character and he expects us to be a part of justice acting decisions. So first, it's a mandate by God. That's why it's important. The second reason it's important is because it's the baseline for a civilized society. Any society must have codes of laws and justice. God knew that, and that's why he constructed through Moses the Ten Commandments for the people of Israel who are wandering across the desert. They need guidelines. They need a civil order. It's very important. 
So back to the text, which is where we'll move here for the next few minutes in Romans chapter 13. I want to remind you of when this was written. It was written when Nero was the emperor of Rome, likely. Maybe not at the time that Nero had gone completely crazy and persecuted Christians, but certainly in that era. Paul is writing in circumstances of overwhelming Roman oppression, even if it wasn't to the level of persecution yet. He was writing in a context where the notion of individual rights that we embrace now was something that was a foreign concept to him. There was such a thing as rights in the Roman Empire, clearly, and he exercised those rights, but not the way we think of it. So Paul, in this context, with an oppressive Roman Empire and no idea about the Constitution of the United States or the Declaration of Independence or any of those individual rights that we embrace, in that context, Paul says, obey the authorities. They are God's servants. So if we were actually to have followed Paul's admonition, it is not likely that there would have been an American revolution. Go back and read it for yourself and ask how it could happen. We might be the great inheritors of an American revolution, but according to Paul's standards, you shouldn't have done that. Certainly, according to Paul's standards, January 6th wouldn't have happened. Paul says, respect the authorities. Because it's the baseline for civilized society. He not only says, respect authorities because it's a baseline for civilized society. He says, respect authority because it has been established by God. In other words, obey or submit to the authorities and pay your taxes. Really? Pay your taxes? Paul, why are you getting in my personal stuff? There's a whole bunch of millionaires that missed the memo and famous politicians who missed it as well. Pay your taxes. Which is exactly what Jesus said as well by the way. Why? Because God has appointed these people because they punish the wrongdoer with the blessing of God. And obedience means to actually stand under their authority because they stand under the authority of God. So to put it, as Paul says, to rebel against them is to rebel against God. What? Why were these words even written? If you're reading Romans from Romans 1 through Romans 12, this seems like a meteorite out of nowhere. Romans 13 is like, what? Where'd that come from, Paul? We have to wonder. Some conjecture Paul didn't even write it at all. It was inserted later because of things that needed to be said according to the Christian community. The problem with that is there's absolutely no evidence for such an insertion. 
which is typical of a lot of biblical interpretation that goes beyond colors outside the line. There's no, absolutely no evidence that this was added later. These are Paul's words. So why might he have put these words in here? I actually think the best explanation is is actually found in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And the extremes that can come out of admonition like Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1 tells the Christians that they should be living sacrifices to God. Romans 12.1 and following basically says you are a counter-cultural group of people. Romans 12.1 and beyond basically sets up the potential for an abuse of spiritual authority and power that's outside the realm of secular authority and power. Now we know this was a problem in Corinth because people were living like that outside the law because they had a different standard, a spiritual standard. Perhaps, perhaps Paul is saying, not so fast. Yes, you've been set free in Christ. Yes, you're supposed to dedicate yourself to the cause of Christ. Yes, you're supposed to live with a set of spiritual eyes. But don't think for a minute that that means you're supposed to live different in terms of judicial code from the rest of the world. Don't use that as your excuse to rebel against authority. Perhaps that's the reason Romans 13 shows up. We can't know for sure. What we do know, though, if we analyze this text and the history of the church, this is going to sound like somebody who doesn't believe in the authority of Scripture, but hang with me. These words are not always true. Paul's admonition is not always true. Now, again, Don't charge me with heresy yet. This is the same Paul who wrote these words, who challenged the Roman officials with beating him outside the confines of the Roman law in Philippi. They were going to take Paul and Silas, and get them out of town as quickly as possible. And what did Paul say after being beat within an inch of his life? Oh, no, not so fast. Do you realize I'm a Roman? I am a Roman citizen? At that, they were terrorized. Because you cannot whip a Roman citizen without a trial. Paul said, not so fast. I have some rights here. Before it was all over, they put him on a horse. And yeah, it looked like that. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. That, that really wasn't planned, I promise. <laughs> but, but Paul exercised his rights, correct? And it doesn't sound like the admonition he's giving us here. 
It sounds like he's basically going against his own advice. Instead of respecting the authorities and submitting to the authorities, he says, oh no, I'm not going to submit to your plan now. You beat me. I didn't deserve a beating. Now you make it right. That's one reason that his words are not always true. The other reason his words aren't always true is because the authorities do not always in Scripture and throughout the history of the church act in your best interest. They don't do things that are for your good. Paul's going to learn that pretty soon when he gets his head chopped off for doing nothing but sharing Jesus. So there's a sense in which Paul's words and advice, while authoritative, have to be taken contextually. The only way that persecution for the Christians that followed Paul and for Paul himself could be good for them is the phrase that all things work together for good for those who love God were called according to his purposes. But the authorities were not acting good or righteous when they persecuted Christians for no reason. I don't think that my interpretation of his words not always being exactly correct in every situation is something Paul would deny he would readily admit that this is a general standard and one that we ought to follow. So you've probably lost track by now of where I was. This larger point was the importance of justice, and the first was it's a mandate of God. The second is it's a baseline for civilized society. And the third, why it's important, is because it's intuitive. It's a righteous human response. People have always cried out for justice. We see that early on in the Old Testament in Exodus where the people of God are oppressed by the Egyptians and they cry out to God, God, we got to have justice. We're dying here. We see it in the words of the prophets. One of the most famous words is the words of Amos. Let justice roll down like a mighty river, an ever-roaring stream. It's a righteous, intuitive response when people are on the heavy oppression of injustice to cry out for justice because it's deep within our hearts. It's the right thing to say, the right thing to do. So, The first major point was the biblical history of divine justice. The second major point was the importance of justice. And the third major point is the problem with justice. It's probably pretty easy to see the problem with justice. We don't apply it equally, do we? No. You see it all all the time. Every one of you could list 10 examples of how justice has not been applied equally by the authorities. 
those who are supposed to uphold the rule of law. That's why early on in the law of Moses, uh, God warns people who have the ability to administer justice. He says, don't pervert justice with partiality and favoritism. If you use justice in such a way that it is perverted by partiality and favoritism, you are not doing God's work. Don't do it, says the author in Leviticus. Something else the author of the Pentateuch says, it says, don't pervert the justice that is due the immigrant, the fatherless, the widow, all classifications of the disenfranchised minority in a majority culture. Don't pervert justice by not giving them their just due. That's Deuteronomy 27, 19, if you care to look it up for yourself. So don't pervert justice with partiality and favoritism and don't pervert justice by not giving it what is due to people who are in a minority status, a weaker status than others. You better be really careful, God says, that you're equitable when it comes to those categories. Because God fights for the poor. That's clear in Scripture. So the problem with justice is that um, it's not applied equally. Another problem with justice, well, it's difficult to be impartial. We know we're supposed to be, right? But it's difficult to be impartial. Will you just in the quiet of your heart admit that to me, with me? It's difficult. I, I want mercy for me and justice for my enemies. I favor myself and my friends and my family. It's part of the ingrained human nature that's me. And that's why it's difficult. Impartiality is hard. But we're called to it. Third problem with Justice is it's hard to make righteous judgments. It's really hard. Because of our inclination towards inequality and our inclination towards partiality, it's hard to make righteous judgments. We have these clouds that get in our way. That's why we routinely say no one is above the law. Why? Because we don't want someone who is authority, him or herself, or a powerful person, him or herself, or a manipulator, him or herself. We don't want that person not to find justice. We want everybody to be beneath the law. That's why the idea of a fair trial by a jury of your peers is so important to our judicial system. 
There's a, another part of the difficulty with making righteous judgments. It's that even when I have a righteous impulse, even when I have the ability to apply justice, there is a little demon inside me called vengeance. Not just punishment, but vengeance. And that's why just before this passage, Paul quotes in Romans chapter 12, another passage of scripture. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So, you know why? I know it's so hard to make righteous judgments. Because when somebody close to me was once physically harmed, I want to admit to you that I dreamed of vengeance. I didn't just want the court system to do the right thing. I wanted to be part of the punishment. Maybe, maybe most of you are not so sinful as I am in that regard. But honestly, I think most of us are. And that's why justice, righteous judgments are so hard. The final uh, point is the promise of justice. Here's the promise of justice. It actually will happen now. Not always perfectly, but as the saying goes, the long arm of the law is patient and will reach to the offender. Sometimes people get by with it, I know that. But for the most part, justice can and will happen now. If nothing else, in the words of Jesus, we remember that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. If you invest in violence, it's likely your end will be violent. Justice actually happens now. It, of course, is best handled through a legal process. But it can happen now. Here, here's the second promise of justice. Again, already and not yet, right? Already, it happens. Not yet, we're not there yet. Second promise is this, the final judgment is coming. The final judgment of God is coming. What's interesting to me about the final judgment of God, particularly in the book of Revelation, 
it's not so much focused on individuals. The final judgment is focused on evil that is instantiated in Satan. Snuffing out bad people will not fix the problem. Incremental justice, which is important, will not fix the problem. It's the enemy of our souls that must be defeated. It is sin and death that must be reckoned with. And it will be reckoned with in the person of Jesus Christ who rose again from the dead and is the righteous judge of the universe. It's going to happen, my friends. It's going to happen. No wonder we long for it. Because there's something inside of us that says, surely it's coming. And surely it is. There's coming a day where everything is going to be put to rights and everything will be made whole. So while we wait in the already, but not yet, how should we wait? First, let me give you the really good news. Okay, here's the really good news. Through Jesus Christ, you have already been counted not guilty. Before the judgment seat of God, you are not guilty based on the merits of Jesus Christ. You are not guilty. That's beautiful. Beautiful justice. And it's true. Second, I, I just want to throw this in. I know I've gone long. I can't help it. I want to throw this in. You know the judgment seat that's often referred to? Most of the time we think of the judgment seat as walking trembling before God. And he's going to call out all our sins in front of the whole world and a variety of different things. I knew I grew up with that. You know what else the judgment seat implies? The judgment seat, same word, used in the Roman times, was the place where victors of a race came to be crowned. Where athletes stood before the emperor and got a prize. So we don't want to think of the judgment seat of God as just some overwhelming negative thing, which it is. We want to think of it as standing before God and God declaring us not guilty and giving us a prize, a prize of righteousness. Second way we we wait First, we wait remembering we have been pronounced not guilty. Second way we wait is we wait with the responsibility to seek justice in our world. It's important for us as Christians to seek justice that reflects the nature of God. It's important for us as Christians to seek justice that brings order out of chaos. 
How do you do it? I don't want to canonize anybody, but at the risk of canonization, I can't imagine a better example of the way to be involved in a society that is full of injustice than the way Martin Luther King did. Non-violent protest. Calling out injustice. And asking us to hear the echo and change our ways. I'm afraid that many people who are activists on the right and the left have forgotten that model. But it's a good one. The final point is that how do we wait? We implement justice in three ways. And here I go back to the passage read earlier. We live justly. We follow the law. We love mercy. Even when justice is applied, we don't allow vengeance to enter our decisions. No anger, just justice. And we walk humbly with our God. Why? Because we know we're sinners. Because we know we deserve judgments. We know that we make mistakes. So we walk humbly with our God. And one final thing, though Micah 6, 8 doesn't say this, we wait patiently. All the scripture says that. And patience is a really hard thing in our world, isn't it? Instant gratification, that's just the way things are. But we implement justice and wait patiently because it's coming. Let's pray. God, I I thank you for the promises that you give us in your word that you're going to make everything right. You're going to renew your creation to the way it's supposed to be. And that because of the grace of Jesus Christ, we will be pronounced not guilty as we already have. Already have been pronounced not guilty. Waiting for the day, the not yet that hasn't arrived, where we will stand before your throne and hear those beautiful words. Well done good and faithful servant, enter now into the joy of your Lord. Amen.